Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, well, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Rees listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off, visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Today's story is by the amazing speculative fiction author Max Gladstone. We discovered him through his colleague Amel El-Mokhtar, with whom he wrote the time-travel epistolary novel This Is How You Lose the Time War. Now, more about Max. Max Gladstone has been thrown from a horse in Mongolia, and that's something I can't say about anybody else I know. And he's been nominated for the Hugo, John W. Campbell, and Lambda Awards. He is also the author of Empress of Forever and the Hugo-nominated Craft Sequence. And, of course, he wrote this really spectacularly crafted story you will hear today. It's called A Kiss with teeth, and it was originally published by Tor. You'll meet Vlad, our protagonist. Vlad is a father, a husband, an accountant, and also Vlad is a vampire, one who has decided to suppress his darker urges in order to live an urban lifestyle with his loved ones. We get to know Vlad bit by bit, and we get to know how truly painful it can be to deny our inner truths. I can't wait to let you in on this story, so let's just get to it. Please check out the written content advisory in the episode description, if you are so inclined. And so, let's take a deep breath. Let's go. A Kiss with Teeth by Max Gladstone. Vlad no longer shows his wife his sharp teeth. He keeps them secret in his gums, waiting for the quickened skip of hunger for the blood rush he almost never feels these days. 
The teeth he wears instead are blunt as shovels. He coffee stains them carefully, soaks them every night in a mug with world's best dad written on the side. After eight years of staining, Vlad's blunt teeth are the yellow of unplayed piano keys. If not for the stain, they would be much, much whiter than bone. White almost as the sharp teeth he keeps concealed. Sarah has not tried to kill him since they were married. She stores her holy water in a kitchen cabinet behind the spice rack, the silver bullets in a safe with her gun. She smiles when they make love, the smile of a woman sinking into a feather bed, a smile of jigsaw puzzles and fireside blankets. He smiles back with his blunt teeth. They have a son, a seven-year-old boy named Paul, straight and brown like his mother, a growing, springing sapling boy. Paul plays catch. Paul plays basketball. Paul dreams of becoming a football star or a tennis star or a baseball star, depending on the season. Vlad takes him to games and wears a cap to keep the sun out of his eyes. From their seat far up in the stands, he smells the pitcher's sweat. He sees the ball strike bat, sees ball and bat deform, and knows whether the ball will stutter out between third and second, or arc beautiful and deadly to outfield, fly true, or veer foul. He would tell his son, but Paul cannot hear fast enough. Paul explains each play when it's done, slow, patient, content. Paul smiles like his mother, and the smile sets Vlad on edge and spinning. Sometimes Vlad remembers his youth, sprinting ahead of a cavalry charge to break like lightning on enemy ranks. Blood. He remembers oceans of it. Screams of the impaled. There is a sound men's breaking sternum make when you grab their ribs and pull out and in. A bassy nightmare transposition of a wishbone snap. Vlad knows the plural forms of sternum and trachea and all declensions and participles of flints. Talk to the teacher, his wife says after dinner. Paul watches cricket in the other room, Fiji squared off against an Indian team. Vlad once was in a death cult in Calcutta. The entire cult. British colonial paranoia being fine cover for his appetites. And in the 60s, he met a traveling volcano god in Fiji. Neither experience left Vlad with much appreciation for cricket. On what topic should we converse? He asks. He does not end sentences with prepositions. He learned English in a proper age. Paul, you you should talk to the teacher about Paul. Paul is not troubled. She shows him the report card. She never rips envelopes open, uses a thin knife that she keeps in her desk drawer. The report card is printed on thick stock. Paul is not doing well. In the next room, he shouts, The teacher's name is a smudge, a dot matrix mistake. Vlad works in an office where he pretends to be an accountant. 
He uses pretend spreadsheets to deliver pretend assurances to clients who pretend to follow the law. In coffee break conversations, he pretends to care about baseball. This is easy. Paul listens to games on the radio two at a time, recounts highlights as Dad tucks him into bed. Vlad repeats his son's stories in the break room. He does not think he tells them right. No one seems to notice. With his cellular telephone, he calls the number on the report card. I wish to schedule a conference with my son's teacher. He tells them his son's name. 6.30 is acceptable. Thank you. On the weekends, he and Paul play catch in a park two blocks from their apartment in this city that calls itself new and thinks itself old. There are many people in the park, but they pass like ghosts, schooled at unseeing and the loneliness of crowds. Vlad and Paul toss the ball. Vlad throws slow. Paul catches with ease. Vlad sees himself through his son's eyes, sluggish and skinny, a man who moves as if first rehearsing the movements in his mind. Vlad does rehearse. It took him a year to slow his movements so a human eye could follow them. Another year to learn to drop things, to suppress the instinct to right-tipped teacups before they spilled, to trip occasionally. Five years to train himself not to see things human eyes cannot. Sometimes, Paul's gaze darts from his homework to the ceiling, and Vlad thinks he has failed that the boy learned this nervous tick from him and will carry it through his life like a cross. Vlad does not like crosses. He catches the ball and throws it back, a white sphere oscillating through a field of ghosts. The teacher waits, blonde and young. She smells like bruised mint and camellias. She wakes at 4.15 every morning to catch a bus from Queens so she can grade papers at her desk while the sun rises through steel canyons. When he sees her beside her classroom door, Vlad knows he should leave. No good can come of this meeting. They are doomed. But he has arrived with steps heavy as a human's, squeaking the soles of his oxblood shoes against the tiles, a trick he thinks lends him an authentic air. The teacher looks up, sees him, black-haired and pale and too, too thin. You're Paul's father. Her teeth are round and white. Mr. St. John. Bazarab, he corrects. It is hard to seem human, to walk slowly as if through ankle-deep mud. I'm sorry. She turns to open the door. Paul has his mother's last name. Bazarab is mine. It is strange in this country. Please call me Vlad. The nasal American A, too, he has practiced. Nice to meet you, Vlad. I'm glad you could take this time for me, and for Paul. She looks back and starts. Her pupils dilate. 
Her heart rate spikes from a charming 65 beats per minute to 74. Blood rises beneath the snow of her cheeks. He stands a respectful yard from her, but cursing himself, he realizes that seconds ago he was halfway down the hall. His smile hides his frustration. He ushers her ahead of him into the room. Her heart slows. The mouse convinces itself that it mistook a tree's shadow for a hawk's. She is tired, and she must have missed the sound of his approach. He could not have moved so fast, so silently. The room is spare. Rows of desks, blackboard. This he likes. Many schools no longer use slate. She sits on a desk facing him. Her legs swing. You have a large room. We share, her mouth twists. Anyway, I'm glad to see you here. My son has trouble. I know he is a bright boy, but we wonder why his grades are not so good. I think he is a child. He will improve, but my wife, she says I must speak with you. So? She watches him. Vlad shifts from foot to foot. The room smells of chalk dust and cleaner and camellias and mint. Her eyes are gray. She bites the inside of her lips, a nervous habit. Lines grow from the corners of her mouth to the corners of her nose. They surface at twenty-five or so, the first signs of age. Vlad looks away to see her is to know her pulse. What is he like in class, my son? He's sweet, but he distracts easily. He fidgets and forgets his homework. I have seen him do the homework, but he doesn't turn it in. Perhaps he is bored. Her brow furrows and he realizes he has insulted her. The shame is sharp. I am sorry. Your work is difficult, but perhaps he needs more attention. I wish I could give it to him, but any attention I give him comes from the other children in the class. We have forty. I don't have much attention left to go around. I see. He paces more to let her see him move like a human being. He averts his eyes. Have you tested him for ADHD? And what would the testing of his son reveal? Perhaps I can help review his work, for example. That's a great idea, if you have time. He dotes on you. Vlad laughs. Does his son admire the man or the monster whom he has never seen? I will help if I can. She gives him Paul's assignments for the week and smiles. Vlad, cold, afraid, smiles back. Great, his wife says when he tells her. She does not ask about the teacher. Thank you. She folds him in her arms and he feels her strength. Their reflection in the bathroom mirror reminds him of chess pieces from different sides of the board. I hate that school. So many bad memories. Elementary school has no hold 
on me. A soft peck on the cheek, and she fades from him. Every school night, he sits with Paul in their cramped living room, bent over the coffee table, television off. Vlad drags a pencil across the paper so slowly he feels glaciers might scour the Hudson in the span of a single problem. After a painstaking long division, he finds Paul asleep, cheek pooled on the table. He touches his cheek. Paul opens his eyes, stretches, and shakes the sleep away, his mother's habit, and they talk through the problem again. Then Paul does the next. Vlad remembers cities rise and fall. Do you understand? he asks. Dad, I get it. Paul does not get it. The next week, his quiz papers drip blood. Perseverance is important, Vlad says. In this world, you must make something of yourself. It is not enough to be what you are. It all takes so long. The way Paul looks at Vlad makes Vlad wonder what he has said wrong. The following week, Vlad returns to the school. He measures each step. The shoes he remembers to squeak. The lungs he remembers to fill and empty. So many subtle ways to be human. So many subtle ways to be wrong. The vacant hall still smells of chalk dust and soap. The teacher's room nears. He smells a trace of camellias and mint. He will not betray himself again. The door to her classroom stands ajar. Through the gap he sees empty desks. A man sits where she should be, bent over papers like a consumptive over his handkerchief. His nails are ragged. Pale scalp peeks through his thin hair. Where is the teacher? The man recoils as if he's touched a live wire and spills a cup of pens onto the floor. Vlad does not count them. The man's heart rate jumps to a hundred beats a minute. If someone scared him this way every hour for several months, he would lose the paunch at his waist. Who the hell? I am Mr. Bazarab, he says. Where is the teacher? I, I didn't hear. The man stops, recovers his breath. I'm the teacher. A teacher. Kneeling. He gathers the pins. The teacher of my son. I was to meet her. A young woman. Blonde hair. He does not mention her smell. Most humans do not find such descriptions useful. Right, says the man. Mr. Bazarab. He does not pronounce the name correctly. Angela had to go. Family thing. She left this for you. He offers Vlad a red folder. His hands shake. Is she sick? She's fine. Her father's in the hospital. I am glad, Vlad says, and when he sees the other's confusion, he adds that she is well. Thank her for this, please. The folder contains assignments and a note in Angela's generous cursive hand. She commends Vlad's work. She apologizes for missing their meeting. She suggests he return next week. She promises to be here for him then. 
Lad reads the note three times on his walk home. He tries not to smell the chalk dust or the camellias. He smells them anyway. His wife returns late from the library. While he works with Paul, she does pull-ups on the bar over the bedroom door jam. Shadows fill their unlit bedroom. Paul tries. How many times does seven go into 43? And what is left over? When his pencil breaks, he sharpens it in the translucent bright red plastic toy his mother bought him with pleasant curves to hide the tiny blade inside. Vlad would teach Paul to sharpen his pencils with a knife, but knives are not allowed in school. Also, they would need to collect the shaved bits of wood and graphite afterwards. The old ways were harder to clean up. Tell me about your teacher, Vlad says. She's nice, Paul replies. Three goes into eight two times, and two's left over. Nice, Vlad echoes. After, Vlad and Sarah tuck Paul into bed. I miss cricket, Paul says. I miss football and baseball. This is only for now, says Sarah. You can watch again when your grades get better. Okay, Paul is not okay, but he knows what he is supposed to say. In the kitchen, the kettle screams. They kiss Paul goodnight. Sarah changes to flannel pajamas and a fluffy robe. She looks tired and happy. She sits cross-legged on the couch with her tea and opens a book. You're doing it again, she says ten minutes later. What? Not moving. An old habit of his. Find a dark corner, stand statue still. Observe. When I am tired, I forget. Or remember, she says. I always remember. He sits in the love seat at right angles to her. It's good what you're doing with Paul. I want to help. You do. He shifts from the love seat to the couch and does not move slow. The wind of his passage puffs in her eyes. She blinks and nestles into him. Is this okay for you? I worry. Her hand rests strong and solid on his thigh. I hope you're telling me what you need. Ten years ago, he needed this. Ten years ago, she chased him with her brilliant, methodical mind, ferreted his secrets from ancient archives, and hunted him around the world. Ten years ago, he lured her to the old castle in the mountains. Ten years ago, she shone in the starlight that filtered down to the castle's cracked roof. He could have killed her and hid again, remained a leaf blown from age to age and land to land on a wind of blood. She seemed so real in the moonlight. So he descended and spoke with her, and they found that after everything, they knew one another better than anyone else. Ten years passed. What does he need? 
He leans toward her, his sharp teeth press against the false yellowed set. He smells her blood. He smells camellias. His teeth recede. He kisses her on the forehead. I love you, they both say. Later, he tries to remember which of them said it first. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Founders Brewing Company, we set out to create a beer that lets you embrace the unconventional. Mortal Bloom is a radiantly beautiful, hazy IPA that will wrap your taste buds with intense citrus and tropical notes of pineapple and mango. Coming in at 6.2% ABV with big aromatics and no bitterness, it's the perfect beer, if we do say so ourselves. Visit foundersbrewing.com to find Mortal Bloom Hazy IPA. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Now, let's get back to our story. He sees the teacher every week after that. Angela, on Thursdays. Mint and Camellias. She coaches him on how to coach his son. Vlad wonders, not for the first time, why they send their son to school. But he and Sarah discussed this back when they learned she was pregnant. They are not a normal couple. Whatever else Paul learns, he must learn how to seem normal. Now he is so normal that he cannot do basic math. So Vlad stands in the schoolroom, nods when he understands Angela, and asks questions when he does not. Vlad studies the space between her words. He learns she lives alone. He learns that her father in the hospital is the only parent to whom she is close, her mother having left them both in Angela's childhood. He learns that she has nerves like a small bird's, that she starts at every footstep in the hall outside, that she does not sleep enough. He does not need to learn her scent, that he knows already. One night, he follows her home. 
This is a mistake. She leaves the building after sunset and walks to the bus. She rides one bus straight home. He takes to the roofs and chases the bus. A game, he tells himself. Some humans now hunt with cameras rather than bows or guns. Fishermen catch fish to throw them back. He leaves his Oxfords on the schoolhouse roof and runs barefoot over buildings and along bridge wires. Even if anyone did look up, he is a wisp of cloud, a shiver of remembered nightmare. A game, he tells himself, and lies. He fools himself at first as she emerges from the bus and he follows her to her building and she drops her keys on the stoop and kneels quick and tense as a spooked rabbit to retrieve them. He lets the moment pass. She enters her apartment. He retreats across the river to the schoolhouse, dons his Oxfords and inspects himself in a deli window, pats his hair into place, brushes dust off his slacks. He only learns that he was lying later, when Sarah asks why there's dust on his collar and he says something about a construction site. He returns his round teeth to their coffee cup and lies naked on their bed, curled around her like a vine. She smells of sweat and forests, and smelling her reminds him of another smell. Teeth peek through his gums, His wife twists beside him, half asleep, and he lies there lying still and relives the last time he killed. The first step taken, the second follows, and the third faster, as when he taught Paul to ride a bicycle, movement begets movement. He's less formal in the classroom. He jokes about the old country, lets his accent show. Laughter eases her face. You both work, she says. Tutoring Paul takes time. Does he have grandparents who could help? His mother's family's far away, Vlad says. My parents are both dead. I'm sorry. His father fell in battle when he was 14. His mother died of one of the many small illnesses people died from back then. It was sudden, he says, and they speak no more of that. He recognizes the sympathy in her eyes. That night, Paul is too tired to study. Vlad promises to help him more tomorrow. Paul frowns at the promise. Frowns? Don't sit well on his face. He's too young. Vlad tells him so and lifts him upside down. He shrieks laughter. Work is a dream. He's lost the knack of normalcy. He walks among cubicles and where once his fellows paid no mind, now they fall silent and stare as if a dread king passed. Management offers him a promotion, which he turns down. Vlad and Sarah make love twice that week. Ravenous, she pens him to the bed and feasts. Playing catch with Paul, Vlad almost forgets, almost hurls the ball up and out 
over the park, over the city, into the ocean. His power wakes. He slips into habits he has tried for ten years to break. During his home commute, crows flock on brownstone rooftops. Black, beady eyes watch for his command. This is no way to be a father, no way to be a man. But Vlad was a monster before he was a man. Again and again he follows her as the autumn cools. The year will die. Turn me back, he prays to her. Show me some reason I cannot close my fingers and seize you. Some avenging friend, a family, a lover. But she is alone in the world. And sad. Paul's grades slip. Vlad apologizes to Angela. He has been distracted. It's okay, she says. Don't blame yourself. He does not blame himself or her, but this must end. On the last morning, he makes Sarah breakfast. Bacon, scrambled eggs with cheese, fresh orange juice. The squeezing takes time, but not so much for Vlad. He wakes early to cook and moves at his own pace, fast. Fat slithers in the pan. He counts seconds while he waits for the bacon to fry, for the eggs to scramble. By the time his wife is showered, breakfast's ready and the kitchen is clean. He makes Paul's lunch. He cannot make amends. Delicious! She snags another piece of bacon and hugs him around the waist. Isn't your dad the best at bacon? Paul laughs. Vlad hears it as a knowing laugh, because he is afraid. What's the occasion? She asks. I love you, Vlad answers. Paul makes a face like a punchinello mask. Crows follow him to work. At Midtown, they perch on street lamps and traffic lights. Hospitals and asylums brim with madmen, raving, eating bugs. Vlad is a great mounting void, and the city answers him. He breaks a keyboard by typing too hard, drives his pinky finger through the enter key into his desk, embedding a plastic splinter in his skin. He pulls the plastic out, and the wound heals. IT replaces the keyboard. He leaves at sunset. Thunderclouds cluster overhead. Heat lightning flickers on his walk uptown. Fear shines in the peasant's eyes. Peasants, a word he has not thought or used in years. It will soon be over, he tells himself. Back to normal. Whatever normal is. He meets her in the classroom. They do not talk long. The time for talking's past. She is all he remembered. Sunlight and camellia and mint. Blood throbs through her. He feels it when they shake hands. Red waves rise and fall. I must thank you, he says, once she's gone over Paul's assignments for the next week. You have given Paul so much. 
that's nothing. She may think he cannot hear how tired she is, or else she trusts him and does not care. If every father cared as much as you do, this would be a better world. He follows her home. After sunset, the crows descend in masses on the city and croak prophecy in its alleys. Currents of black wings rush down Broadway. Bats flock and whirl. Rats writhe and sing rat songs on subway steps. Grandmothers remember their own grandmothers' stories, call their children and urge them to stay inside. On rooftops, Vlad follows Angela down the dirty street from her bus stop to her apartment. She does not notice him. She notices nothing. The rats, the crows, the bats, all shy from her. They will not interfere. She's young, her life a web of dream. This world holds only pain for her. Better, surely, to leave before that pain blooms in a moment's red pleasure. His gums itch. He slides the false teeth from his mouth, seals them in a Ziploc bag, and slips the bag into his pocket. Angela shuffles down the street. The weight of her shoulder bag makes her limp. His teeth, his real teeth, emerge myriad and sharp. He tastes their edges with his tongue. She opens the door and climbs. He follows her heartbeat up five floors to her studio. He leaps across the street, lands shadow soft on Angela's roof beside the skylight. Below a door opens. A light comes on. She's drawn curtains across the glass, but there are gaps and he sees her through them. She sags against the door to close it, closes her eyes, and lets her bag fall. Her apartment looks a mess because it's small. Milk crates turned into bookshelves, overflowing with cheap paperbacks and used textbooks. The couch slides out to form a bed. There is a narrow coffee table, a barren kitchenette sticky with oil, sheets piled in a hamper beside the couch bed, dirty clothes in another hamper, dishes in the sink. She opens her eyes reluctantly, Two steps to the fridge from which she draws a beer. She opens the cap with a fob on her keychain and drinks. Three steps from fridge to the couch where she sits, takes another drink, then swears. Motherfucker. First two syllables drawn out in low, the third a clear peal like those little bells priests used to ring in the litany. She lurches back to her feet, retrieves her bag, Sits again, removes from the bag a thick sheaf of papers and a red pen, and proceeds to grade. Vlad waits. This is not the time. You take your prey in joy. Insert yourself into perfection, sharp as a needle's tip. When she entered the room, he might have done it then, but the moments passed. She grades, finishes her beer, gets another. After a while, she returns the papers to her bag. 
She plugs in a thick laptop with a broken screen and turns on a television show about young people in the city who all have bigger apartments than hers. Once in a while, she laughs. He watches her watching. He could only permit himself this once, so it must be perfect. He tries to picture it in his mind. Does she lie back on her couch, smiling? Does she spy him through the curtains and climb a chair to open the skylight and let him in? Does she scream, run? Does she call his name? Does he seize her about the neck and drag her toward him while she claws ineffectually at his eyes and cheeks until her strength fails? She closes the laptop, dumps the dregs of her beer in the sink, tosses the empty into the recycling, walks into the bathroom. The toilet flushes, the water runs. He hears her floss, brush her teeth, gargle and spit. Do it. The perfect moment won't come. There's no such thing. The doorknob turns. He wants her to know him, understand him, fear him, love him at the last. He wants her to chase him around the world, wants her to see him moonlit in a dark castle. He wants to be her monster. The door opens. She's wearing blue flannel pajamas. Four steps back to the couch, which she slides into a bed. She spreads a comforter over the cushions and wriggles under the comforter. Hair halos her head on the pillow. Now. She can reach the light switch from her bed. The room goes dark, save for the blinking lights of coffee maker and charging cell phone and laptop. He can see her staring at the ceiling. She sighs. He stands and turns to leave. Moonlight glints off glass ten blocks away. His wife has almost broken down the rifle by the time he reaches her. Nine seconds. She keeps in practice. The sniper scope is stowed. As he arrives, she's unscrewing the barrel. She heard him coming. She waits for him to speak first. She hasn't changed from the library. Khaki pants, a cardigan, comfortable shoes. Her dark cap covers her hair. She wears no jewels except her watch and his ring. I'm sorry, he says. I'll say. How did you know? Dust on your collar? Late nights? I mean, how did you know it would be now? I got dive-bombed by crows this morning. A work-study kid came in babbling about Satan. You used to be subtle. I'm out of practice. She looks up at him. He realizes he's smiling with his own teeth. He stops. Don't. I'm sorry. You said that already. She stows the rifle, zips the case, stands. She's shorter than he is, 
broader through the shoulders. Why did you stop? She wasn't you. So, what do we do now? I don't know. I thought I could be normal, but these are me. He bares his teeth at her. Not these. He holds out the false teeth wrapped in plastic, closes his fingers. Porcelain cracks, crumbles. He presses it to powder and drops the bag and powder both. You might as well kill me now. I won't. I'm a monster. You're just more literal than most. She looks away from him, raises her knuckle to her lip, looks back. You deserve a good man. I went looking for you. She doesn't shout, but something in her voice makes him retreat a step, makes his heart almost beat. I miss... The words sound naked. He struggles to finish the sentence. I miss when we could be dangerous to one another. You think I don't? You think the PTA meetings and the ask your mothers, you think that stuff doesn't get to me? Think I don't wonder how I became this person? If I lose control, people die. You stopped yourself tonight. And if you screw up, she nudges the rifle case with her boot. There's that. Paul needs a normal family. We agree. He needs a father, one who's not too scared of himself to be there. He stops himself from shouting something he will regret, closes his lips and his eyes, and thinks for a long while as the wind blows over their rooftop. His eyes hurt. He needs a mother, too, he says. Yes, he does. I screwed up tonight. Yes, but I think we can work on this together. How about you? Sarah, he says. She looks into his eyes. They embrace and part. She kneels to lift the rifle case. Here, he says. Let me get that for you. The next week he plays catch with Paul in the park. They're the only ones there, save the ghosts. It's cold, but Paul's young, and the cold doesn't bother Vlad. Dead trees raise skeletal fingers to rake the sky. Leaves spin in little whirlwinds. Vlad shrugs off his coat and sweater, stands in his shirt sleeves, cradles the football with his long fingers, tightens his grip, but not enough to burst the ball, just to test it. Paul raises his hands. Vlad shakes his head. Go deeper. 
He runs, crumbling dry leaves. Deeper, Vlad waves him on. Here? Vlad's never thrown the ball this far. More. Paul stands at the edge of the park. That's all there is. Good, Vlad says. Are you ready? Yes. His throws are well rehearsed, wind up slowly, and toss soft. He forgets all that. Black currents weave through the wind. A crow calls from the trees. He stands, a statue of ice. He throws the ball as hard as he can. A loud crack echoes through the park. Ghosts dive for cover. Windows rattle and car alarms whoop. Vlad wasn't aiming for his son. He didn't want to hurt him. He just wanted to throw. Vlad's eyes are even faster than his hands, so he sees Paul blink in surprise more than fear. He sees Paul understand. He sees Paul smile. And he sees Paul blur sideways and catch the ball. They stare at one another across the park. The ball hisses in Paul's hands, deflates. It broke in the catching. The wind rolls leaves between them. Later, neither can remember who laughed first. They talk for hours, chase one another around the park so fast they seem colors on the wind. High-pitched child screams of joy and Vlad's voice deep, guttural. Long after the sky turns black, they return home grass-stained, hair tangled with twigs and leaves. Paul does his homework, fast. They watch cricket until after bedtime and Vlad leaves Paul in bed, sleeping. Sarah waits in the living room. She grabs his arms and squeezes, hard enough to bruise, and pulls him into her kiss. He kisses her back with his teeth. His imagery and 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 the and the way he gets us to stop, um, or at least slow down and focus on the mood that he's setting with the prose, and the way he talks about blood and and Vlad's senses, how heightened, how attuned they are. I I I I love Max's writing. I mean, we are so aided and abetted in our efforts by the, all of the lore. Uh, you know, of, of, you know, vampires and, and all of that. And, and, you know, so we all bring all of that with us to the listen. But still, I mean, Gladstone, this guy's really good. I mean, really good.
But the thing that strikes me most about this story is the parallel that it has um, to black people in America. There's a thing called passing, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard of. Maybe some of you have not. But basically, it means that um, after all the misogynation of slavery, that there's a lot of white blood in the population of black people. And so there are varying degrees of the color spectrum reflected in African-American skin tone. Um, the more white, obviously, the lighter you get, to the point where there were people in the days of enslavement, certainly, New Orleans is a, is a city where a lot of mixing of the races went on, and you see the, that coloration that exists to this day in that, in that city. Certainly during the Jim Crow era, there were a lot of black people who could pass and did. Some didn't. But the whole idea of passing is what this story really brought up for me the idea that that you have to that you use your gifts and talents to tell a story a story that's not necessarily true about you but you become so adept at telling that story so skilled at it that no one would ever know the truth about you and that's that's the beauty i think of vlad that he is so practiced at slowing down enough to appear human. And I guess one of the things that really makes me sad about this story is that, or happy about it, I'm not really sure which I feel, the, the idea that at the end of the day he can't contain himself. He, he can't keep that up anymore. The story speaks about 10 years of trying, 10 years of perfecting, 10 years of getting it right. And then it all falls apart in the blink of an eye. He has, he's been, he's been trying to protect his son and, and that's a, a large part of why the, you know, the, the charade is so important to him. He believes that, that it's for his son's survival that 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 he's passing right and what's so wonderful about the ending is that he discovers that the best thing he can do for his son is to be himself and and when sarah says you know what he needs is a father who's not afraid to be himself that what does that ring true for me as a as a parent as a husband um as a grandfather what I owe my relationships is to be myself um, in the fullness of what that is. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, am a, I am, at best, a work in progress. Um, it's taken years and years and years and years and years for me to learn how to be comfortable in my own skin um, and to really... Um, enjoy who I have discovered myself to be. It's hard won, hard fought, a lot of time on the couch <laughs> in therapy, um, and a lot of exploration and in, in exposing myself to different aspects of the human journey and, and, and how they might be utilized in, in the service of healing, healing the wounds, right, of childhood, healing all of that hurt and pain. Um, so that 
the past doesn't continue to trip us up in the present. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads, as always, is Julia Marie Smith, the best in the business, with assistance from New York's own Harry Huggins and Renee Colvert right here in the City of Angels. Renee being one of my favorite human beings on the planet. A special shout out to Kristen Torres for story suggestions, editing and sound design by Brendan Burns, who knew the kid was so talented. My genuine thanks to Max Gladstone for allowing me to read his story today. He is the author of Empress of Forever, creator of the interactive TV program Wizard School Dropout, and the co-author, along with Amel El Maktar of the Nebula-nominated This Is How You Lose the Time War. And here's an idea. If you like listening to the show, why not recommend it to a friend who you think might enjoy it? And encourage that friend to also leave a ratings or a review on Apple Podcasts. You both might want to consider including a story suggestion for us. We read them. We love them. We use them. We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story. But if you don't want to wait that long, you don't have to. You can get next week's episode right now, plus exclusive bonus interviews on Stitcher Premium. Each story goes up one week early and it's ad-free. Just go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar or if you're listening in Stitcher, just tap the menu button in your app and select Premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Media. Our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and yours truly, LeVar Burton. I am LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter, at LeVar Burton, and check out my newest series called This Is My Story. You can find it on my Twitter feed and on YouTube. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 